0: I am of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I'm of the nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent getting sick. Mm. I am of the nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my death. And my deeds are my only companions. Those are the only things that are going to accompany me. So these reminders, these reminders both to really savor the joys and pleasures of our lives and express our love because it is fleeting, and then at the same time to remember what is truly important because if all of our grand structure of life is eventually going to be crumbled, how do we focus on what will leave us with the least least regrets? How do we focus on what will leave us feeling truly good about ourselves when we say goodbye?
1: This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in spiritual care at the end of life. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts.
2: I'm Joe Newton, and I'm Saul Abel. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We have a special guest for you. We have Katie Butler. She's an award-winning journalist, public speaker, and a best-selling author. She wrote two groundbreaking books. The first book was Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. And the second book is The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. Katie, thank you for joining us.
0: My pleasure. It's really nice to be here, Saul.
2: Yeah. You wanted to read something? Sure. Yeah.
0: In the years I've spent listening to hundreds of people's stories of good and difficult declines and deaths, I've learned one thing. People who are willing to contemplate their aging, vulnerability, and mortality often live better lives in old age and illness and experience better deaths than those who don't. They keep shaping lives of comfort, joy, and meaning, even as their bodies decline. They get clear-eyed about the trajectory of their illnesses so they can plan. They regard their doctors as their consultants, not their bosses. They seek out medical allies who help them thrive, even in the face of disappointment and adversity, and they prepare for a good death. They tend to enroll in hospice earlier, and they often feel and function better, and sometimes even live longer, than those who pursue maximum treatment. They make peace with the coming of death, and they seize the time to forgive, to apologize, and to thank those they love. They rethink the meaning of hope, and they often die with less physical suffering and just as much attention to the sacred as our ancestors did.
1: Very powerful words, wow. words Katie. Uh, I'm just thinking of a recent patient in our hospice. And I met this lady, oh, months and months ago. And like you said, she was in our palliative program first. Then she switched over to hospice as time went on. Uh she had the most gracious, wonderful death that I was never part of because of this COVID-19 wow. isolation. Mm-hmm. But I heard the story. I talked to her daughter and the and the facility was willing and gracious enough to allow her in. And I mean, I can cry about it out here just thinking about talking about because this this daughter was able to lay with her mother, nap with her mother, be with her until the time she dies. And I had talked to this lady months and months ago, like I said, and she had said, I'm just waiting for Jesus. He's going to take me. Everything's going to be just great. And she had the happiest smile and the look on her face. And I looked at her daughter when I would be visiting with them together. And the daughter said, oh, we've talked about this. Don't worry about it. You're not, you know, this is nothing new. This is, this is just what we're getting ready for. And I'm like, this is exactly what you're talking about
0: yeah and i i think we've kind of bought a bill of goods that we have a very kind of bootstrapping individualist culture and we've bought this bill of goods that you can just think your way into everything you know and as long as you think positive nothing bad will happen and unfortunately though that can be very very useful at other times of life when we're considering approaching the end of life We're actually more empowered, more accepting, more capable of influencing the nature of how we die if we can accept it and face it and contemplate it rather than simply try to shutter our eyes and just have blinkers on and hope for the best. It doesn't tend to work out that (laughs) way.
1: No, no, it doesn't.
0: both of my parents died on an inpatient hospice unit that was an absolutely beautiful place. And actually, a, ha- a chaplain <laughs> helped me immensely with my dad's death. We were all long-lapsed ang- Anglicans, like uh-huh. decades and decades. But I asked her to give him last rites, and I found it tremendously comforting to go through a formal ritual in which I was essentially turning my father's soul over to the benign forces of the universe. And it didn't matter whether the precise language really fit my belief structures anymore. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am. And so how grateful I am to all the hospice chaplains who might be listening to the show.
2: At what point in your life did you begin to think about end-of-life education and end-of-life care?
0: Well, I'm going to tell you a funny story. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
0: when I was a teenager, young teenager, we had a landlord and landlady who actually lived in our basement. They lived in the basement and rented out the top of the house. Mm-hmm. And they were both serious alcoholics and... One of them died while we were living there, not in the house, but in the process. And I remember afterwards being quite fascinated with the process of death. I think that was my first sort of direct encounter that someone I actually knew. And I remember with my brothers, dragooning my brothers into these ritual funerals with our stuffed animals, where we would hold a funeral for the stuffed animal. And then skipping forward quite a bit, I was a reporter in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis, so I had friends who got sick, friends who died, and the whole question of how do we ennoble or make sacred the process of something that we cannot avoid, and how can we be there for the people we love? How can we create, whether it's religious or artistic ritual that supports the, these deep, deep human experiences that became very current for me. And then I also, as a reporter, spent three weeks in an um, intensive care unit watching how decisions were made. And this was back in the 80s, but frankly, I was horrified by the failure to accept the reality of death. Then I'm going to skip, this is a long answer, I'm sorry. No, no, but it's good. <laughs> forward, then, of course, I became, I had to, and entered my own fifties. My dad had an absolutely devastating stroke at the age of 79. And our our entire life turned upside down as a family. And I did my best to support him and my mother through the long process of his own dying and then her fairly fast and very decisive process of the end of life. She was a real, she was a Zen warrior, and she just (laughs) faced it. She refused certain surgeries, and she went out with a bang, really. So I learned a lot, very different things from the two different deaths.
3: Mm.
0: The first one I really saw an over-prolonging of the most painful stage of my father's life because he was given a pacemaker that I think really just prolonged his worst years and left us with a feeling that we had lost all influence over shaping the end of his life. Um, and then I saw my mother being so brave and so decisive, and that was difficult too. It's not like death becomes easy, hmm. but but she was remarkable and and very poetic in the way she died, so. I learned a lot from both. And now I'm in my 70s and facing my own decline at some point. And so I had to write the second book, which was really about a guide.
3: Mm -hmm. sort of a
0: user-friendly guide for the average person. You need a map of what these declining years are going to look like, because there are so many decision points and crossroads where if you take one road, you're going to head toward a highly mechanized highly hospitalized form of dying Mm. that may not be what you want. If you're not, if you're someone like me, it's not what you want. And then there are many, many crossroads where you can turn toward whether it's palliative care or rehab or hospice that will serve your needs much better if you know what your needs are. Mm.
1: But how do you address the question when it comes that time and how I mean, when people are finding it very difficult because of a lifelong uh, inability to talk about this subject, even though we know we are all, you know, not immortal. (laughs) We are very mortal and we can't make, I mean, because I just think of my own family and my own situation and, you know, they always get a little angry with me because all I do is talk about death. You know, they say, oh, we had enough of that. And so I keep quiet a lot because I just find it very significant for us to recognize the fact that. Um uh, when you're dealing with a 96 year old mother, that at some point that's going to happen. Even though there are many people in our family who say, "Oh, it's never mind," you know, grandma's going to live forever. And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." But how yeah. do we do? How do we do that? And then the, the the that kind of dovetails into the idea of how do we talk to our medical professionals about that too?
3: Yeah. Well,
0: I found most helpful because my husband is exactly where your family is. I found it. My belief is look for the shallow end of the pool where they feel safe keeping a toe in. Yeah. And I think there are two places. One is people actually seem to like to talk about what music they would like at their memorial service. Hmm. The process of being already dead is a lot less scary than the process of dying. And so if you <laughs> sort of skip over, the top part. <laughs> and then once we really talked about the music, mm. I think it's easier to sort of back into some of these more delicate issues. Like, uh, is there poetry you would like to hear read mm. while you were dying or while you were really sick? The other thing I think can really help is, I'm sh- sure you guys are familiar with the the phrases popularized by Ira Bajock of thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. Hmm. And the wonderful point about those is you can clean up your side of the street without even mentioning the word death or dying. Right, Hmm. yeah. When my dad was really sick, after he'd had this terrible stroke, for speech therapy, they were trying to get him to write letters, and so he and I exchanged these letters. I got to thank him for everything I needed to thank him for. And by implication, we didn't even discuss it, but I think the apologies and the forgivenesses just kind of happened organically without words. Mm. And I still have those letters. Oh! By the time he actually died, I was very complete. I didn't have any kind of self-regret or recrimination or anything after his death. I mean, if I look at his picture, I still feel, oh, you poor guy, mm. If we had made a better decision about the pacemaker, maybe you could have had a year or two less of this misery. But other than that, i don't i don't I don't feel anything was left undone. Mm.
1: I get the opportunity to do consents with uh, some of our new patients and I get the opportunity to talk to them about hospice and what is expected. Uh, one of the things that we have in our packet is that from Ira Bayak, the, uh, you know, thank you, the all of that. And it's written by our by our medical director saying this is a prescription so that people, and I, and I tell you, when I hand that to people the first time and ask them to read it and they look at it and they shake their head and said, yeah, yeah, we got to do that. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: It it almost gives me the shivers (coughs) right now. And I was unfamiliar with it at the Mm -hmm. point where my mother died. And she did so many of these things just intuitively.
2: Hmm. You know, uh, you wrote uh, a piece uh, about your dad, What Broke My Father's Heart, the the article that went viral. I remember reading that many years ago. Uh, Was that part of the motivation?
0: Absolutely. It was an interesting journey at the time that it happened. Mm-hmm. My mother, about six months before my father died, asked me to help her get his pacemaker turned off because the years in which it could, you could have argued that it was maybe helpful had long passed. And of course, there had been no discussion of any kind of exit plan. It was a very, very hard thing to do. The doctor, the cardiologist basically said to me afterwards, it would have been like putting a pillow over your father's head to have turned to the pacemaker. It was brutal. And we were clearly not in charge in any way at that moment. I felt like maybe my mother and I are outliers. Maybe we're horrible people. Clearly, we were being regarded as horrible people. And so, writing the piece for the New York Times magazine about this family experience was scary I was afraid we put it out there and I would get inundated with letters from people saying how could you be so horrible really Mm. Mm. Uh and even think these thoughts like as though there does come a point for some people when they do say as my dad did say my dad said I'm living too long I'm not going to get better I'm living too long Mm. we don't really give much space in this culture for a caregiver who is exhausted after seven years to be able to say, this is killing me. Uh And we don't really give much space to women like Joe's grandmother who is saying, I'm ready for Jesus to take me. It's interesting. It's a real taboo. And then the result from this article was completely different. I got a thousand emails within a weekend from people (laughs) saying, we have had some version of your experience. It might not have been a pacemaker. It could have been a defibrillator. It could have been an ICU stay. It could have been a feeding tube. But we faced these intense moral crossroads and we felt the guidance we were getting from the outside world, from the people who didn't know our family and didn't love our loved one, was so in contrast to our gut and our heart feelings of what the right thing to do might have been.
1: Hmm. Well, my my, wow. my thought when those things happen like they do and they continue to happen every day, uh, people are afraid to say that, you know, we're, we just want quality we don't want quantity now and then they're going to feel like that, you know especially the medical community will probably think that you're uh, you're asking them to kill your loved one in a in a roundabout way without you know with the fear that that you know it's going to happen on my watch and then there's going to have that guilt and whatever without them really recognizing the fact that it's the the patient's request the family's request
0: well exactly and of course when i wrote the article and then when i wrote the book I learned, of course, that the Supreme Court has said we all have the right to refuse or to ask for the withdrawal of any form of medical treatment. And that mm-hmm. as long as we are competent or we have a, somebody who speaks for us who's competent and mm. expresses our wishes, we, we don't even have to have a good reason. You know, we don't even have to justify it. It's actually our right. But that's not how it plays out, of course, because Mm -hmm. these technologies are complex and you may need a specialist to turn them off or deactivate them. It's quite a quagmire. And I want to segue here to something that is a real issue for oncologists and sometimes cardiologists, which is this fear of taking away hope from people. Mm where my belief, my actual very strong belief is that people are much more resilient than doctors assume and yeah. that will have climbed mountains, had divorces, had children die, people manage to make it through very difficult things and they almost always do better if they have a clear picture of the landscape and the situation they're facing. So one of the things that I say in my book The Art of Dying Well is Mm. know the trajectory of your illness. We don't know exactly, nobody can tell you how many weeks or months, but they can give you a chart of the landscape. They've seen enough heart failures. They've seen enough cases of emphysema. They've seen enough cases of certain cancers. They know pretty much what that little stock market chart is gonna look like. And if we can have that information, and have reasonable goals that are actually meetable, we can have better deaths. But if we're constantly kept in the dark and we don't know, do we have five or 10 years or is this going to be the last year, we can't really shift our perspective or shift our compass and head in a direction that's actually helpful, like a good death, like, leaving the kids feeling somewhat resolved, like not leaving the kids traumatized by the nature of the death or a a horrible last minute decision to remove life support or something like that.
2: So uh, then in the book, The Art of Dying Well, um, what's the role of resilience in all this?
0: Well, my feeling is that if we have the truth in front of us, we can be resilient, and that there are a couple things we need and help us a lot to be resilient, and that, I think you've already mentioned it, is the social context. It's having those friends, having those neighbors that we've done favors for before, that we've been part of a whole community of give and take with people who can then support us in the hours when we really need help. And I'm sure you guys know, like sometimes the people who show up are not the people you expect. And <laughs> yeah. the people that you do expect to show up and be helpful, run for the hills.
3: <laughs> and uh-huh.
0: You, you kind of have to roll with it and accept what comes. So I think a huge part of resiliency is being willing to ask for help, being gracious and thankful about the help that gets given you so you don't burn out your caregivers. Mm. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. And then more and more, I just fall in love with ritual. Whether you're conventionally religious or not, I think ritual really helps us come to terms with these major, major shifts in identity, expectation, what's meaningful. The whole question of what's meaningful about this stage of my life, it may not all be comfortable. But there are ways that we can make it really meaningful.
1: But does resilience happen when you don't know the truth? No. Okay. That's what I thought. I mean, because we run into, I I mean, I've run into that many times visiting with patients. That Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, the families are trying to be very kind and wonderful to the loved one and tell them they're not dying. And I want to go in there and just, you know. Stop my feet and say, you know, what's going on here? But I have to, you know, rely on what it is that's going on and try and lead them into that direction because, um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, hearing you talk about the resilience and what little I've read about that in your book, uh, it makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, it, it's incredible what you're, what that is saying to me right now.
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes are there ways to, shift focus and ask what are the other ways you can express your love for this person other than telling them they're not going to die exactly
3: right right,
0: mm-hmm. right. Uh, you know are there stories you want to tell or retell are there are there thanks that you want to give or memories that you want to share again that could really support your loved one without, I don't know, I, you know, my hat is off to you when you face these situations. It must be incredibly difficult.
2: I have a quote here. You said, before you must accept the things you cannot change, you can seize the time to prepare for what's ahead and to change the things you can. That's deep stuff there.
0: Well, it's deep. (laughs) It's very, it's really the serenity prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous and Michael uh-huh. There, my book really goes through stages of aging and decline.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh-huh. the early chapters are very much about how can you maximize your quality of life now and your physical strength and your ability to age in place. Mm. Because there are points early on where you face crossroads where you can really make a huge difference. My husband, who's 70, had a health scare recently. He has since lost 15 pounds, given up eating flour and sugar completely, and starts, you know, he's starting to look like a boy again. And, <laughs> and, he, and his neurologist said, wow, this is fabulous, keep this up and we can take you off the statin that you're on. And statins can have side effects. So there are points where being very proactive can actually make changes for people and there are lots of programs that support that. Like there's a pre-diabetes program at the Y that helps people change their exercise and eating habits with group support because these things are almost impossible to do alone. And then there are later stages in life where we really have to accept the things we can't change because you can't turn back the clock. This is not fixable. And we need a whole different set of spiritual and psychological muscles to cope.
2: So uh, what is your spiritual upbringing? I'm sure you must be rooted in some kind of faith, you know, to come up with this um, the topic of death and dying and writing a lot about it. <sighs>
0: I started out as an Anglican, and so were my parents. When we moved to the United States from England when I was about seven, they completely abandoned what had been a pretty sincere spiritual practice in the church and became agnostics and atheists. I always had a deeply rooted sense of something, and I used to just go out and lie on the grass and feel the power of nature. And then I became a very serious Buddhist when I was about 28 and have practiced Buddhism since then, sometimes very intensely living in residential communities and sometimes catch as catch a can. And I think I respect most the enormous commonalities that I see across religions. And I think one of them, especially from Buddhism, is that the suffering that we face is a lot easier to handle than the sufferings we try to run away from. That when we run away from suffering, we actually tend to maybe postpone it, but to make it a lot worse. And I think that's very true around issues of decline and death and dying. I studied with the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who some people know. And he actually led us through several retreats where we would imagine the body dying and the body decaying. Very classic, ancient Buddhist practices.
3: Mm.
0: I think that helped. And every morning we would recite, I am of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I'm of the nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent getting sick.
3: Hmm.
0: I am of the nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my death. And my deeds are my only companions. Those are the only things that are going to accompany me. So these reminders, these reminders both to really savor the joys and pleasures of our lives and express our love because it is fleeting and then at the same time to remember what is truly important because if all of our grand structure of life is eventually going to be crumbled, how do we focus on what will leave us with the least the least regrets? How do we focus on what will leave us feeling truly good about ourselves when we say goodbye?
2: So acceptance of our humanity is key.
0: Yeah, and our mortality. Our
2: mortality, our, yes.
0: Our, our transience. I think where Christianity is a lot stronger and Buddhism, at least as it's manifest now, is weaker is... About the beloved community, Mm -hmm. about the support of our fellows. I feel that uh, Christianity provides people with really beautiful vehicles and support for acts of kindness, substantial acts of kindness. You know, everything from the covered dish left at the door when somebody's really sick, which is so meaningful for people, and really stepping up in various ways. I've been trying to write a story recently about a beautiful, beautiful hospice in New Orleans, which was created as a pop-up hospice in the middle of the COVID crisis.
3: Hmm.
0: So they created from scratch in two weeks an inpatient hospice unit where people with COVID can come and be cared for and two family members a day can visit all gowned up but they can visit they can be there so we don't have to have these dehumanized deaths that are creating so much sorrow for families and for healthcare providers and a lot of them were very dedicated christians and it was clear that their faith had given them tremendous strength to move mountains and to move barriers and set up this unit in only two weeks, which is astonishing. It's usually something wow. a year, year and a half, two years to do. So I think faiths, I, I, I don't think you have to be classically religious or part of a particular practice to get a great deal of help from the idea that there is a power greater than oneself. And for me, a lot of the time, it's a long walk in nature. It's the awe of the beauty of the world and the fact that so much beauty in so many different shapes and forms has been created that you could spend a lifetime staring at one oak tree and not really be able to fully take in all just the particulars of that one tree. And yet it's all around us. This beauty is
1: all around us. We as chaplains have to deal with all kinds of folks in all different religious settings and situations and trying to address those things in a, hopefully a positive and an appropriate way. Uh, I think the, tr- the the attempt the to walk in before you see these people and do, as you suggest, and that take a deep breath in your car there and just sit and relax and just get yourself focused. And that is part of the Buddhist understanding from my understanding.
0: Yeah. I think we've got excellent grounding, and calming practices. There's also a very beautiful Buddhist prayer called the Metta Prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's also, it's essentially non-sectarian. And it is, may we be peaceful and at ease. May we be filled with loving kindness. May we be free of fear and danger. May we be happy. And you can recite it as a calming practice. You can recite it for yourself. You can say, may I be peaceful entities. And you can go through it just for yourself, so you calm down. And then you could say the name of a particular person, you know, may John be peaceful entities, may he be free from fear and danger. And again, in these extremely stressful moments, like the unexpected death of a loved one or the painful death of a loved one. To have these these mantras, these repetitive, slow, simple prayers can make an enormous difference for how we feel. And if you have, I'm sure you guys know, if you have one calm person in the room, that can actually assert an influence over the other people in the room you're not going to be able to fix them or shape them up but you are maybe in ways we don't really see or but we do sense we're very very helpful
1: that's interesting because pardon me Uh, believe it or not i find myself occasionally in that realm where i just I happen to be that calm presence and, you know, mm-hmm. families are going crazy and uh, you walk in and they look at you and like, okay, you're the pastor. No, I'm the chaplain. I'm the spiritual person here, uh, but that's how they view it. And then you walk in and everything kind of calms down. And But as long as you're calm and you're, and you're you're in that present and you're telling them and you're saying everything is okay, it's amazing how well the room does quiet down.
0: Yeah. And there's something about just being you know, with someone who's gone through this a lot before.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because death has so much, up until the point of the coronavirus, death had been so much pushed into these later stages of life, into the 70s, 80s, 90s, that a lot of us are not familiar with death the way People in the 1910s, the 1920s were Mm -hmm. much more familiar with people randomly dying throughout the lifespan, dying in their 50s or 60s. So I remember when my dad was dying on the hospice unit, a hospice nurse saying to me, kind of, this is how it's probably going to go. He was dying of pneumonia, so he was fairly quiet and he was on morphine, his eyes were shut his fingertips are going to turn blue at some point and then eventually his breathing is going to slow and then it's going to become ragged and then it's going to do like this. I I can't even explain how reassuring that was to me. Oh yeah. I think there was some kind of meta message, which is that dying is not a crisis. Mm. Dying is not an emergency Someone here has seen this happen over and over again before this, unlike me. Mm-hmm. And this is a very normal process and in some ways almost predictable. Some ways it is. Some aspects of it are predictable. Tremendously reassuring.
1: It is nice to have folks around who knows what they're doing and helping you out. I mean, uh, my dad got sick on Tuesday night and died Friday morning. Wow, And it was a wonderful death, absolutely wonderful death for me, because I was able to be there all the time I needed to be with dad. Uh, I saw what he was doing. I saw what was happening. I, you know, with my hospice background, I knew what was happening. I knew everything I thought until my wife, who is a hospice nurse, came in in the morning on Friday morning and went to the bedside with dad. And then she showed me his legs and, you know, modeling. Yeah, I almost fainted. Wow. That was my dad. My dad's dying. He's really dying. You know, when you you know, it intellectually, you don't know it emotionally until you see the, until I said to see something that really told me.
3: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I recovered, of course, and everything. And then, you know, family all around and everything like that. And it was a remarkable time. It was so peaceful. His family around him. The love was, you know, it was just evident. And um and he was in the hospital. I tried to, you know, I asked if we could take him home. The docs all said, no, no, no. You move him, he's gonna die in the in transit, probably. I thought, well, okay. But they treated it like a hospice home, hospice facility. Beautiful. And they did a great job. And It was, and mom was, like I said, mom's now living nine years later, <laughs> enjoying life. And because uh, I asked her before dad died, I said, mom, what are you going to do when dad dies? And she said to me, well, of course I'm going to move. I'm, I got a lot to do. I'm, I'm going to keep living. I'm like, okay. I just wanted to know mom. Great.
0: Given that, it's an interesting segue into our present situation.
3: Yeah, might
0: mm-hmm. be very difficult for your hospice chaplains. Oh, I mean, I'm doing nothing in my mind. Offer, yeah, I wanted to offer you a couple suggestions. I was briefly a part of a group called Virtual Funeral, which is a lot of people in kind of the death acceptance movement. And one of the suggestions they made, which I thought was really beautiful, was, If you can't keep a physical vigil, you can't go and be in the presence. We know about all the video conferencing and the Zoom and whatever, but you can also create an altar at home for the person who's dying. You can put up their photograph, you can put flowers or precious objects of theirs on a little table, doesn't have to be fancy, and light a candle maybe a 24 hour yard site candle. So even though you can't be physically present, you can hold vigil in your own home and send love and caring to the person that you love who is dying, perhaps in a situation where you're just not allowed in.
2: That's powerful, yeah.
0: Really great idea, really great idea. And then there's also, I have a bathing and honoring practice in my book created by some oncology nurses, in which they would uh, it's completely non-denominational, mm. really beautiful. And it was for situations where they could help the family bathe the body of the mm-hmm. and the body of the person who just died in the hospital. But then they would go through and anoint all the parts of the body and they would say, <sighs> We honor the brow. We honor your hair that the wind has played with. We honor your brow, the birthplace of your thoughts. Mm. We honor your lips that have spoken truth. We honor your ears that listened for our voices. We honor your heart that loved us. And you go on through all the parts of the body like that. So poetic, but not would not offend anybody of any religion. And I used to read it at the end of my book talks and I would notice people in the audience would close their eyes. And what they were doing was they were reimagining a death that had not gone as well as they had hoped. Mm -hmm. And so in their own imagination, they were going through this with the body of somebody that they loved. And they would come up to me afterwards and tell me how healing it had been. So this ceremony, I think, has great potential for this present moment where so many people are going to have to use imagination, prayer, good vibes, best wishes, uh, images to substitute for the actual face-to-face connection with the person they love who's dying. And... I don't know if you you probably do know B.J. Miller, who's a palliative care doctor. He's re, he wrote a book called A Beginner's Guide to the End. He's an, a marvelous man, and he said, "You've also got to remember, Katie, that we always think that if the externals are perfect, then the death is going to be okay. But the externals are really never perfect."
3: Mm.
0: And remember that the deathbed vigil is usually more for the survivors than it is for the person who's dying. They're Hmm. often not fully conscious or not conscious at all. Their suffering is about to be completely ended, at least in my spiritual belief.
3: Hmm.
0: Once we die, our suffering is ended. And so we, the living who go on, need to find these new ways and new rituals to take care of our emotions around the death. And we can do that through imagination and ritual.
2: So you've been thinking a lot about COVID-19. You've been through the the AIDS pandemic. Yes. And um, how can people navigate this pandemic?
0: A couple thoughts I have. I think we did learn some things from the AIDS crisis, even though they're very different diseases. We learned about the power of community, Mm. the importance of community, and that community does arise almost naturally if we give it a chance. I think in the middle of trauma, Mm. people are just trying to keep their heads above water. But once the at least the initial stages of this crisis are at least temporarily, we're probably looking at somewhat of a lull for a few months, eventually we will discover mass rituals. For example, the AIDS crisis created the AIDS quilt, which is beautiful.
3: Mm.
0: In England, when I was growing up, they still wore a red poppy to remember the dead of the First World War. Mm, wow. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial. These are all ways that we find these mass repositories for grief and trauma. It normalizes grief, it normalizes trauma, and it also gives it some absolutely beautiful manifestations. But I think it's often later, when the immediate crisis is over, that we're more likely to come up with these things.
3: Mm.
0: I'm part of something, uh, there's a group called Reimagine. And on the ninth of every month, we hold a candlelight ritual, a Zoom ritual, where everybody lights a candle and they hold the candle. I wish I had it one, I don't, but Mm -hmm. they light a candle and they hold it up to the screen. So you can see 300, 1,000 people, all, you see their faces, you see them holding up the candles, And I found it, the first time we did it, it was the first time I could actually cry about what was going on because I felt this holding capacity of what we were doing together. It felt safe to grieve openly Mm. because we are suffering. We're suffering vicarious grief. Those of us who are not directly affected, Mm. we see the images on TV. We suffer vicarious grief. And then we have direct trauma among healthcare people that is very intense, especially if there are no moments of ritual for, that, for the deaths that are occurring in hospitals. And especially when people have a mindset of that, quote, losing a patient means that they personally failed. And this is a unpredictable, ferocious new disease. Healthcare people are doing great. But if they can shift that mindset into a lot of these deaths are inevitable and we succeed when we do our best job, we succeed when we do something to lessen the suffering of the person themselves or the family. There are lots of other definitions of hope and success other than not dying.
3: Mm.
0: Uh, I uh, there's this there's a ceremony called the Pause. I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but in some hospitals, they'll take fifteen to thirty seconds, and they the whole medical team will stand around the bed, put their hands on the person who has just died, state their name, state a few sentences about this was a full life, this was a an individual human life, and then they take fifteen to thirty seconds of total silence. So they get that moment to honor what's happening, to honor their own heart and soul and give them, I think that's another real contributor to resilience is to have, even if even if you have to do it alone and you just have 15 seconds of silence, that's gonna help you in the long run.
1: Do we have hope during this pandemic with the thought that these these frontliners, Becoming resilient because I fear that they it's just going to just beat them up.
0: Um, I think you're right. I think the hope will be in the long run. The hope will be how well we support them afterwards, how much space we create for them to be honest about their emotional and spiritual feelings during this time. And and again, these mass rituals, whatever the equivalent of the AIDS quilt is that we come up with, so that we so that we're all holding it together as a society, maybe as a world, and we can dilute it a little bit for them. Um, but I, I think we I mean we've already had at least one suicide of a of an emergency room doctor in New York. And we are going to see a lot of of trauma, of post traumatic stress. I'm in a Facebook group, and someone said I just signed eight death certificates one <sighs> shift. And is anyone surviving? You know, because you don't even necessarily know about who's coming out the next end or how well they're doing. I think. I I never had thought about it till we talked about it, but I think actually the military metaphor could be very useful, that they really are literally like people in a war zone and that like people in a war zone, we need to rotate them out and and send them to Hawaii so the body can recover for a week or two weeks or a month, seriously.
2: I think that's what hospitals have to do. And and I know, yes, they're overburdened and they don't have enough staff and... The luxury to do that, but to keep these people working, I think that's needed.
0: And there are some wonderful things happening, like palliative care doctors who are very well trained in these end of life conversations who are maybe in San Francisco, where we don't have a surge because we shut down very early. Mm. They are being um, sort of instantly licensed in New York and they are doing a lot of long distance telemedicine to take some of the burden off the healthcare workers there so they can have really meaningful, straight up conversations with people who are not gonna survive an ICU stay if they have this illness. So those palliative care doctors are supporting their workers partly by doing that, Mm. but they're finding they're also having to do a lot of one-on-one counseling with the medical workers themselves who are crying and who need support and are, are traumatized by what's going on. So hopefully this flex, I personally completely expect we will have renewed surges in the fall and they will be serious. Yep. And we won't know exactly where they're gonna crop up, which city is it gonna be, we don't really know. It's probably like this time, it won't be everywhere at once. And so this, ability to start building in some flexibility, Mm -hmm. like uh, these pop-up hospice units that just show up for three months and take over a floor or two. Mm. And telemedicine so that people who are not stressed can come in and help the areas that are stressed. It's not just like we need to move ventilators around. That has turned out actually to be almost counterproductive. It's we need to move around the the soft technology of human caring, of spiritual support, of psychological, emotional support, community support. These are also precious, precious goods that we need to have flexibility in how we deploy them.
2: Thank you very much, Katie. Thank you, Katie.
0: Thank you. I'm honored to have gotten to be part of your show.
1: Appreciate it.
2: That was Katie Butler, an award-winning author and journalist. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please share it with your friends. Thank you very much.